Welcome to Football Indonesia. My name is Richard Clark. I'm a consultant in sports content, digital and social media, predominantly in football. I've worked for clubs and leagues all over the world, but my most recent role has been with the revamped and relaunched Indonesian League, and it's been an entirely new experience for me. Now, football is a global game, but the world competes in it, watches it, and makes a business out of it using very different methods. Throughout this year, I've flown from my home in London to Indonesia and then travelled all over this fascinating country, consisting of thousands of islands, three time zones, and some of the most passionate football fans you'll ever meet. I decided to make a short podcast series on the way, talking to the people reshaping the resurgence of the Gojek Traveloka Liga 1. Today's guest is Anthony Sutton, or as he's better known, Jakarta Casual. Anthony comes from England and grew up a follower of the mighty Arsenal. However, having moved to Southeast Asia a few decades ago, he's become something of an expert on football in the region. He's recently written a book on Indonesian football, and that grew out of his blog called Jakarta Casual, of course. I started by asking him how that blog began way back in 2006. It was about the time I was told I was going to get married, and um, I kind of think to myself, okay, well, I need to kind of like change my lifestyle because there's kind of like a lot of liquid going being in been taken down my neck in those days and um, I wanted to try and do something which would keep me out of the pub in a way and so I always enjoyed writing and I thought what I'll do is um, okay I'll write I went through the whole process okay what are you going to write about well thanks to Google it's easy to find what's popular um, so of course you know obviously I know about football so you Google football you've got like millions and millions of websites about football so okay well you're not gonna get noticed and then I thought okay let's write about Arsenal my real passion and you Google Arsenal and you've got a website called Ars Blog and you've got all the other ones in well, I'm not going to get noticed doing it either. I know what Indonesian football. I write about Indonesian football. Google that. Nothing. Not in English anyway. So, okay, great. I write about Indonesian football. Um, I didn't know any. I couldn't speak Indonesian at the time. I didn't know about the football. I didn't know about the culture of the football. I didn't know anything about the football at all. I didn't know one Percy from another Percy. I didn't know my Percy bar in Kalimantan from my Percy bar in Jakarta. But what the hell? So I thought I'd write about Indonesian football. The next thing I had to do was think of a name. And I think probably the name, think of a name longer than than the actual deciding what to write about because I wanted to get a name that was kind of like identifiable with football, identifiable with Indonesia, as well as being catchy and easy to remember. So after money around some ideas, I came up with Jakarta Casual. And you were based in Jakarta at the time, so tell me how the story, the story of how you got to be based in Jakarta. Well, I, mean, I left England in 1987, so I've been an expat for just over 30 years. And I moved to Indonesia in 2002 after working in various countries like Australia, Germany, Thailand, and some other places as well. I ended up in Thailand, in Indonesia. And I've only actually lived in Jakarta for about one year, I think. Most of the time I've been outside of Jakarta. I live in the suburbs now. And like I said, I just wanted to do something which kind of like opens a door on some different part of Indonesian life that maybe many people won't see or recognize. And since I've opened a door, I've met so many interesting people, fascinating people, and I'm having a blast. I mean, I, I go to parts of the country that you would never normally think about going to just to watch the football um, and to meet the people involved in the football. And, you know, you meet all these other expats who are involved in football and are much more passionately involved than I am. And, you know, they're here for the same reason I am. You know, our families are here and we're, doing, we're involved in football because we love the football. We love Indonesian football. We love what's so special about Indonesian football and Indonesian football culture, which I think is unique in Southeast Asia. Yeah, so tell us about that uniqueness and the culture. What does make it different? And also, 
give it some context as well because sitting here in London in England there's not a lot of differential between the Malaysian League the Thai League the Indonesian League maybe maybe a little bit between the Chinese League and the J League these days but it's all talked about just as Asian football per se Thai football was basically invented in 2009 um, when they started to spread the clubs around the country. Before 2009, the league was basically a bunch of state-owned enterprises who play against each other. You have like KTB would play SET, PAT would play PAT would play RTP and that sort of stuff. And it's very difficult based on that to get fans into excitement, even if you have the good players that they had back then. Thai football clubs that have formed in 1915, 1923, 1927. So you've got a history and you've got a shared experience. You've got fans who support their local team. And even if their family moves around the country to live in different cities in the country, they're still basically for the team that is their local team from the local province. Um, and you talk to Persib Bandung fans or PSM fans, and they'll tell you about events that happened in the past, which maybe they weren't there for, but, you know, they, they, they were passed down from father to son. So it's like when you talk to Arsenal fans and you come across someone who, who was at the 1970 Fairs Cup final against Anderlecht, for example. These tales from the past get passed down from father to son, and you, you share them amongst your mates. So you've got this shared experiences, this shared heritage, this shared culture, which you don't have in Thailand, which started seven or eight years ago. And even in Malaysia, you don't have it. And Singapore's almost dead. There's a lot of similarity thing between English football and English football, yeah. English and Indonesian football, in that you do have these shared experiences, shared heritage. And talk about the fans, because the fans, for me, having had a, a minimal experience in comparison to you, but they're a different gravy, a different gravy from anything else I've seen anywhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, people don't stay in Indonesian football because of the management. You know, the fans are just amazing. The first game I went to, and uh, when you walk out onto the terrace, and on the opposite bank, there's a whole sway of fans jumping up and down moving as one the choreography was fantastic but the noise you get like a small crowd seven or eight thousand and they're making a phenomenal noise and they'll be going to most of the games and they're very passionate and they build up their own cottage industries around the football club because certainly a few years ago football clubs weren't really aware of how to make money out of the the fans would fill that void so you've got a whole series of um, websites and branding and t-shirts and scarf ranges they all come from the fans. So, you know, they, they turn their the support for football club, they turn that into a cottage industry. It becomes their bread and butter and they employ their mates. So there's this whole wonderful ecosystem, if you like, to coin a, to coin a phrase, that's uh, built up around football and football clubs, which, which, again, you're not going to see anywhere else in Southeast Asia. And it, it mimics what we have in England to a certain extent where people might start making their own badges or making their own T-shirts for a football club. But the scale here, I think, is much greater. And even friends of mine who are Indonesians who've been here obviously all their lives. One guy told me that he never thought much about the national anthem. He had it at school every Monday, but it wasn't until the AFC Asian Cup in 2007 that actually said it shivered down his spine because he'd walk inside the stadium and he'd hear 90,000 people, 100,000 people singing Indonesia Daya. And he said, this is the first time it's really, really meant something to me. And this is like a wizened, hardened, gruff old football hooligan. He was getting the same buzz that I get still when I go to games. And the crowds, you've got the procedures and the Persibs who are getting 30 to 35. That's in the top flight. Yes, there's some teams well under 10,000, around 5,000, even less than that. But going into Division 2, it's not like it drops down that much. Yeah, because the history is very deep. You have Persibaya 
who's just, whose story is amazing. They're getting like 30,000, 35,000 in Liga 2, Liga 2, the second division. PSS Slemmen, who don't really have any history, they're getting 20,000, 25,000 most games. And PSS Slemmen now are getting foreign tourists coming over to Georgia Carter. And they're not going to see Borobudur. They're not going to see Temples. These foreign tourists are coming over just to watch the local football, especially PSS Slemmen. And this is a Liga 2 team. You know, you, again, you're not even going to get it in Japan. You're not going to get it in China. You're not going to get it in Iran. Anyway, you need to get it, especially in Indonesia. And PSS Slemmen, the supporters, putting up the te- shows on the terraces. Which, which have been shown around the world. So they're in a Polish um, ultra magazine a few months back. When I was there last month, they had some fans come over from Germany just to watch them play. There was a couple of guys from Cambodia, German guys based in Cambodia, who had come down to Jakarta just to make a documentary about PSS Slemmen fans. You know, a second division team who's done nothing ever in their history, never won a trophy. But it's the fans that make the difference. Football is an experience. You know, the whole... Like again, going back to England and going to see the Arsenal, there was a day out, and it was a day out that started off when you left the house and ended when you got home in the evening, and the whole day was part of the experience. And it's the same here in Indonesia. It's it's a day out for the guys, and very often it's it's a two or three day out because it was, you know some of the away games are quite a long way to go. You know, again, I was in Slemmen recently, and a bunch of guys turned up for the game in jeeps. So we had a convoy of jeeps, or flag waving supporters on the back of the jeeps, giving the order, blah 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 blah. They're organised in a way that many things aren't in this country. And to see the PSS Slemmen fans in England, we joke about. The foreign tourists coming over and taking photographs inside the stadium and selfies inside the stadium. I go see PSS Slemmen. I, I don't watch the game half the time. I'm watching the fans. But you don't know what they're going to do next. It's like just non-stop. Doing a chorus, to do a verse, to do a chorus, to do a verse. It's phenomenal. Absolutely. It's amazing to watch. So that's the good side of Indonesian football, the real passion that they have. But this is the, the fourth biggest country in the world in terms of population. It's the biggest country in the world in which football is the number one sport. But... They are knocking around 160, 170 in the FIFA rankings. Why? God, how long have we got? Yeah, it's a long answer. I know this is going to be a long answer, so pray see it, because there's lots of issues. There's not a lot of professionalism around. It is getting better. You go back to when I first started 10 years ago, it was a joke. At least now you've got half a dozen clubs who are attempting to be professional in the way they operate, in the way that maybe they're marketing, the way they're promoting the football club, the way they're expressing themselves on social media. But even then, they're not really investing within the football club itself. So they're not investing in infrastructure. They're not investing in training. They're not investing in academies. Some clubs are starting to do it now. Bali United, for example, have got their own academy. They opened up in one of the Eastern Islands. Borneo FC and Samarinda are doing a lot of hard work with their, with their academy. And Celebest, which is a new team in Sulawesi, are looking to tap into a new area which has not had professional football before. But there's still, these are still the exceptions throughout, rather than the rule. You know, most clubs don't really worry too much about developing players because they know they're going to sign somebody anyway. So from, from somewhere else, I mean, so that, that's, a, that's one of the things that they do. The other thing is um, the management of the football clubs leaves a lot to be desired. They tend not to be football people. They tend to be politicians. There tend to be people who like, to, you know, local powerful big wigs who like to have their face in, on the TV, who like to be have photo opportunities and like to be seen with people and like to be seen to be successful. When they perceive the football team is not successful, they take it as a personal slight and the coach would walk. And that's a problem that Indonesia is not unique to Indonesia. That happens in many, many other countries in this region. Um, so we talked about professionalism. How like What else is there? Professionalism, management. I think the geography is important as well. The geography is a big issue. The sheer size and the problems of getting around this country doesn't make things easy. That's what, maybe why we might think that as outsiders, but Persipura are the most successful team in the country. And they're way, way, every away game there for them is like at least a three-hour flight and usually a ten-hour flight. And they show what can be done if they run professionally. They, there's a lot of consistency there. 
maybe they change the coach every once in a while on a regular basis, but the core of the team stays the same, the core of the backroom staff stays the same, and they've been successful now for about 10 or 12 years. They lost one of their major sponsors recently, but they found new sponsors, and they, they still, and even now, I mean, so geography's not really impacting them so much. Um, maybe they're lucky because of the sponsors they had in the past, but they're not really too affected by, by geography. And other teams, like Personal Alamogana, for example, they're in the middle of Indonesia, if you like. They're, they kind of punch above their weight. They've got a very loyal, loyal fan base, but they come from quite a small town, so they're, they're, not, they're never gonna really going to cut out any, any trees, but they're, they're, they're kind of like um, Dusbury, if you like. They're always there or thereabouts without actually winning anything. You know, some teams will never win away games for whatever reason. Some teams will never lose home games for whatever reasons. And, you know, these are things that would come back to, you know, the quality referees, perhaps, or the quality or the management of the home team who don't like to lose, lose, lose games. I think, um, you know, the fact that two of the most successful teams in the country have been teams, Suajaya is the other one, who have had to travel a lot to go to games. But, you know, by having the professional management off the field and signing good players and paying them and treating them well, they've been able to dominate the game pretty much for the last 10 years. Oh, you see Suajaya and Persipura. You spoke about the referees. There's ongoing issues with any sort of challenger league about referees, and I've seen this with MLS, that there was always a, a push to improve the referees and the refereeing standards. There's always a gripe of, of fans that the league would only progress when the when the referees were of sufficient standard. And the league this year has pulled in overseas referees, just started to do so. Uh, are you in? Are you in favour of that? And where where do you stand on the refereeing standards? <laughs> yeah, the referee standards are awful. I'm not sure why they're awful. I don't know if it's because they are totally they are really competent or because they're being encouraged to be incompetent. So I'm not quite sure what the real reason is for this, why they're incompetent. But there's certain the work needs to be done. Robert Alberts at PSM Makassar, he's saying that we don't need foreign refs. What we need is um, video assisted replays. So you know somebody can take a time out and have a look at the video replay. Obviously, it depends who the guy is going to be doing that. I think that you know, there's the, the problems with referees get, should we say, worse the further east you go in the country and the further away you get from Java. It tends to have more problems there. I think. I don't know what that says about the coverage or the game, game further east. I think that the idea of foreign refs is a good one. I think it's a, you know they're not just talking about a problem; they're actually trying to do something about a problem. So there's, there's refs coming in, I think, for two weeks and two weeks and for two weeks, short periods at a time. I think it's a good idea. But without actually having foreign foreign refs doing every single game across the divisions, it's highly unlikely that things are really going to change because it's a culture inside the game as opposed to something, you know, not something you can just turn off as, uh, just like that. There was a game just last week in the second division where these players just kicked off at each other, kicked off at the referee. People just piled on the pitch to have a go at the referee and have a go at the other players as well. And players know, I think, they can take liberties here because they know that the referees don't are really that strong. So they know that they can manipulate them. Now, what was I, what, I was watching a game recently. I forget what it was now. And you had um, you had a referees who were actually following the rules of the law, the laws of the, the game. And some of the players are finding this difficult because obviously they're not used to it. You know, they're used to the fact that maybe they can intimidate a referee or they can manipulate a referee. And then suddenly they were seeing this referee saying, no, 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 you can't do that. Step back. I want 10 yards. Small things like that. But the referee was putting his foot down and the players had to do it as they were told. Because, you know, well, and they found that difficult, I think, because they're not used to it. They know that very often on the pitch they can just get where they want. If they don't, if... If things don't go their way, they can maybe slap a referee or push them around a bit and they get support from people on the bench. But when they're playing international football, they can't do that. So I think a greater exposure to foreign refs is a good idea. But it's going to be skewed because obviously, you know, maybe on a, the referees will be appointed to do the safe games anyway and they won't be doing the games which may be high, more high risk. And of course, when they, or when they do the game, then the players will be on their best behaviour. And then when you get a local referee back in charge, you know, all the bets are off again. 
But I think also the idea of having the Scotsman in charge of the referees, if he's allowed to do his job, big if, if he's allowed to do his job, you know, maybe that might start a bit of a sea change. But again, it's, it's a culture thing. You know, it's the way people don't have any respect for the man in the middle. Maybe the referees are really incompetent and they're easily manipulated. And so, you know, how do you change that? How do you change that culture? What happened two years ago that led to the ban by FIFA on both the league and the international team? Because it just come out of it this season. All right. Deep breath. <laughs> there was... The government set up this other like a quango, I guess, called Boppy, which is supposed to oversee all professional sports in the country. What Boppy does is it issues licenses to the clubs to let them to compete, allows them to compete. I don't think the PSSI like Boppy because the PSSI, because Boppy is not PSSI people. So Boppy said, okay, there's two teams in 2015 who should not be playing in the competition because there are con- there's doubts of the ownership. One was Arama, and the was Surabaya United, now called Bayern Club. PSSI said, yeah, it's okay, we'll just carry on anyway. So they carried on playing the games anyway for two or three rounds. Boppy said, no, you can't, keep, you can't do this. So the Boppy, who's actually, you know, like I say, it's, it's a quango, I think, a quasi-NGO, went to the government and said, you know, these two clubs should not be in the league. Because, you know, we don't know who the real owners are. They should not be in the league. So the PSSI, the, the government term, I said, okay, we're no longer going to recognise the PSSI. You've got to start playing the games. So again, the PSSI said, oh, we're going to carry on anyway. And of course, uh, up until now, FIFA would still support the PSSI because the PSSI is the only body allowed to run football. So the government just says, OK, fine, you know, we're going to tell the police forces around the country, you cannot give security clearances to any more games in your district, effectively killing the football. The government withdrew its recognition of PSSI. Police stopped issuing security clearances and that left individual only football. FIFA wrote to PSSI and said, you've got to stand up against the government and tell them that you, only, you can run football. And the was like, well, he's not listening to us. And so finally, after many, many, many years, the FIFA suspended Indonesian football and the national team ahead of the Asian Cup qualifiers and the World Cup qualifiers. The irony is, of course, that several times in the past, there's also been cause for FIFA to do something, but they've done nothing. When there were two leagues, FIFA could have done something, but did nothing. When the PSSI chairman was in jail, they could have done something, but they did nothing. Now, finally, over government interference, FIFA throws a hissy fit and takes action. You know, it's action that could have been taken a long time before. What happened in the interim period? Because football still existed, right? It's unofficial. Yeah, I mean, 2015, there was just a bunch of competitions like Piala President, Piala General Sediman, that kind of stuff. But they, that's throughout the season. So players came and go. Players, there were still transfers going on. There were still competitions going on. In 2016, when the ban was still in place, in the Indonesia Soccer Championship was started, and that ran for the whole season. And probably that was really one of the best run competition we've seen in recent years ironically um it was very well promoted it wasn't too, the competition the standard on the field wasn't too bad and i think social media around it was excellent i was in i was in kuwait for most of it and i was watching games on t on, on live there and the marketing the, the you know we we're getting sponsors in from the from the commercial world which again was unusual because before then the sponsors either came from tobacco until they got stopped or from um, state-owned enterprises so ironically the marketing in the game became better during fifa suspension um, then, luck, fortunately, of course, halfway through 2000 and 2016, the, the ban was lifted. And so we're back where we start back with um, a proper league this year. But I think the, the league we had, the competition we had last year, 2016, wasn't too bad. And hopefully, a few lessons have been learned, by, learned from people in power to what went well in 2016. Once 2017 started, there was a new PSSI and new people were doing different jobs and there was no continuity. So, in many respects, we're kind of back where we started because. People bring their own people have their own appointees in all the jobs in the PSSI. So when the new guys take over, they basically got to start from scratch. 
because all the guys from the, under the old ownership, old leadership, went with the old leadership. So this idea of continuity doesn't happen. So we, every time this happens, we have to reinvent the wheel. So the league this year, uh, we're just over halfway through. What do you make of it so far? I don't think it's as well run as it was last year. And one of the reasons for that is because you had all these um, new people taking over and not, not really knew what they're doing. The idea, you know, the whole youth thing, under, under 23 players was badly handled. The, the thing with suspensions and fines for football clubs has been badly handled. But I think slowly but surely, maybe they're starting to get a grip of it. But again, it's halfway through the season. I think that now we've got um, a new PSSI general secretary, Rathmatisha. I'm hoping that maybe she can shake a few bones in the in the um, in the organisation because she's um she's young. She started a company a few years ago about statistics and data for football, and so she's she's got good ideas and she has good people around her. So I'm hoping that if she's allowed to make a difference, she can make a difference. But the big thing is, will she be allowed to make that much of a difference? Because there's still so many entrenched interests who have their own agendas, which may not always be to do with football. And um, one thing that we've had this season unfortunately is we've still got supporter deaths happening in the stadium there Persib uh, and Persija the biggest game of the season a mm. fan called uh, Rico Andrean unfortunately lost his life so it kind of keeps on happening it hasn't gone away that that violence issue is still there isn't it just just talk about where we are with that and how how we've evolved or not evolved over the last few years I mean, when we talk about violence it's not organized violence that you get that we used to get in England is spontaneous and something just kick off for the smallest of reasons for example this guy for similar stories I've, I've heard about this poor lad um, he'd taken off his perceived shirt so he wasn't actually wearing any colors when he and then the other people got involved in the fight and they were hiding behind him and he got caught up in it somehow and because he wasn't wearing club colors like he was a target in another year somebody had the, somebody was beaten to death because he didn't cheer loudly enough when the home team scored other times as people have been beaten to death in when you've had a, an away supporters traveling through a town and traveling through maybe the wrong town at the wrong time of the day when fans from another team are there and their the presence. It's not organized violence, it's spontaneous. That's what makes it so difficult to control it. Because you don't obviously, by definition, you don't know when it's going to kick off. There have been some moves by the fans to improve things. They've stopped singing some of the more offensive songs. That's, that's been toned down a bit. And they're actually, you know, paying attention now with stuff like the flares, which they're not allowed to take in stadiums anymore, and they're following that. But it needs, governments have talked about it for a long time. It doesn't need the government, it, it needs the fans to get together and talk about it. Because it's, it's the fans are the ones who are dying, the fans are the ones who are ending up in hospital. It's the fans' parents who are burying their children. A few years ago, there was some some officials got together and said, OK, we've got peace between Percy Jow and Percy Bandong. OK, fine, you know, made the headlines. First time that Percy Jow fans tried to travel to Bandung, they were stopped by the police in West Java, and the road, the tollway to Bandung was closed for three or four or five hours as they're running battles with the police. So it's not something maybe that's stopped by officials, it needs to be stopped by the supporters. In Indonesia, you've got like, we don't have, there's nothing like Arsenal fan TV here. What you have is like fans who are faces, if you like, well respected supporters who have influence. And these are the ones that need to get involved. And I think they're starting to get involved. Um, when this poor lad was in hospital recently, you had one of the members of the Jakarta fans and one of the members of the Pandong fans came together to see him in the hospital together. And they would talk together about what to do. And I, mean, I understand their relationship's quite good anyway. So as you go further down the ladder, you come into areas where local rivalries and low incidents maybe do not get erased so easily. But what has happened in the wake of Rico, Rico's sad passing is that 
three days later, I think it was, outside the Patriot Stadium in Bakazi. Some Persija and some Persib fans just gathered together outside the stadium spontaneously. And were like hugging each other and waving their arms around and um, and singing songs and everything. And some of many of me, the coach of Bayankara, was, was, his team was training inside. He, thought, he, you know, he told me it was amazing to hear it. Is it going to last? I don't know. Bakazi is kind of a mostly a Jakarta area, but it's the kind of thing that needs to be built upon. But I think it's got to be led by the fans. Maybe the police and security officials can come along later on, but it's the fans who need to make the peace in, in the local level. And I, I've seen it. I, we went to see Persib play, and the driver drove right outside the Persib Stadium. We had Jakarta number plates in the car. So as we put uh, five hours before kickoff, as we drove past the Persib fans, they're like, "Engine, engine, Jakarta engine!" Like swearing at us, Indonesian. So luckily, the driver speaks. The driver speaks Sundanese, and we open the window in the back and like, "Hello, bule, bule, foreigner." Oh, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. But it's very, very you know, without influential fans getting involved. I think I can't see anything changing in the next few years. Really, it's happened so many times, and there's so much bad blood between some of the sets of supporters. Let's turn to international football. What's the story there? Because the ban that from FIFA meant the international team hasn't played for a couple of years. That's affected the ranking. That's affected a little bit of progression, I would presume. Where does Indonesia fit within the rest of Southeast Asia when they come together in, in competition? Well, I mean, everyone was surprised. I think last year, Indonesia played in the ASEAN Football Federation Suzuki Cup in the Philippines. The coach, Alfred Riedel, was told that you can only take two, te- two players from each team maximum. So he was limited by the squad he could put together. Um, I went over to the Philippines to see the games. And in the first game against Thailand... Indonesia were losing two and a half time. And we're like, yeah, okay, it's normal service. The Thai's going to win this five or six nil. Indonesia, with basically a, a squad cobbled together, ended up drawing that game 2-2 and played really, really well in the second half. And, we, and I was with the Indonesian fans looking at each other going, what the hell? This, we're not used to this. They played well. And the second game against Philippines, um, again, they, they, they took the lead but were pegged back. And then in the final game, they had to win to go through to the, to the semifinals. And they beat, Singapore 2-1. So this team that basically come from nowhere, the league was still going on in Indonesia while the international the national team was playing in, in the Vietnam in, in the Philippines. Sorry, um, they really overachieved. Really surprised everybody. They played Vietnam in the semi-final, beat them in the semi-final, played Thailand in the final, and at once the Thais took the lead 1-0, I think it was, and Indonesia fought back to lead 2-1 after the first leg. So there was a massive surprise at the performances. And, uh, you know, I feel like, you know what? This isn't that this is too bad. We've got, some, we've got some players here. We can do things. And especially as it, it wouldn't have been Alfred Riedel's first choice 11 or even his first choice 22. But again, as is normal with Indonesia, since then, the f- Lewis Miller's come in and his first task has been to focus on the SEA Games. So a lot of the players who were involved last year in, in, this, in the ASEAN Cup have been dropped for a new, a new generation of players to come through and try their, try, try their luck. So... Always we've been hampered by this lack of continuity, lack of continuity. You know, yes, Indonesia's underachieved for many, many years, but, you know, when we talk about when they go overseas, they're not used to playing with referees who follow the rules. They're up against players who are bigger and stronger and fitter than them, have a better diet than them, take care of their bodies better. You know, we can't be really that surprised, but the short-term thing is what damages it. Short-term thinking and cross-cutting. I mean, there's always talk about lining up these posh friendlies against big teams, and of course, they never happen. I mean, Argentina was scheduled to come to Indonesia earlier in the year so again it's money it's management it's professionalism but you know they showed in December last year what can be done they reached the final of the Suzuki Cup are there many naturalised players there's a few isn't there 
Bakhtim and Gonzalez. But is there a, a tradition yeah, of naturalising players? They going on since 2010. Um, but there was none involved last year in the Suzuki Cup. You know, they're, they're trying to focus now on the Indonesian players only. But again, that's saying that. We've got naturalised like Gonzalez, but then we've got Irfan Bakhtim, if I recall, has got Indonesian par- an Indonesian parent. So it's, not, it's, it's, it's kind of a different nationalisation process. But he's not been involved, but Ezra Wallian, they're looking to involve Ezra Wallian, who was played for Ajax last season, young Ajax. But he's half Indonesian as well. So, But the idea of somebody who's been fully naturalised, like Gonzalez, like Bia Pauline, I think that one's been knocked on the head now, at least for the time being. So how would you how would you fix Indonesian football? Pick us out a few important things that you would do first off that would give us the most bang for our buck in terms of taking it forward. Because that's the kind of frustration that I see. The fact is there's huge potential in this country to have a, have a strong league, have a, have a good national team as well, because the passion is there from the fans. It is very important and surely that will drive everything. But it doesn't seem to happen for all sorts of reasons which you've talked about. So what are the quickest fixes to give you the most amount of progress? Football, football reflects its whole society. I mean, it's taken nearly 40 years to build a sky train in, in Jakarta. You know, so against that bank drop, how, what chance have we got for football? When you look at the roads outside of Java, it's like, then, you know, you look at the roads outside of Java, and what, you know, why would anyone even think about football? You look at some of the villages and, the, you know, how poorly adequate, how poor the poor facilities in, in so many parts of the country. Bodies rot from the head down, don't they? I think so. It needs, like, professional management in the PSSI, but also, you need professional management that goes down to the provinces. And the provinces are the guys that actually get things done at the grassroots, the guys who generate the, who provide the competitions for the young lads. So it needs to be a pyramid, if you like, of um, professionalism that starts at the very top and goes all the way down to the provinces and then the districts and the towns and that kind of stuff. And that's going to be a problem for human resources if we're able to get professionalism from the top down to the bottom and do away with one step at a time so you know I, I look at teams like Majority United look at teams like Borneo I look at teams like um, Bali United and I see what they're doing and so you know it's like you know it's that old saying isn't it um, be the change you want to be in others and then you've got some football clubs are trying to make an effort within their within the host culture the host society and I think they're the ones who can by example lead the other ones and, you know, drag the other ones out, the morass and out the swamp, I hope, if people see it as benefits, if, if people see it as a benefit to it, beyond just, look at me, I'm on TV again. So that would be, you know, the Indonesian way of doing it, I think, would be just taking out club by club by club by club and do it their own little way. And let's hope that people learn the example, because I think that, you know, the idea that the piece is higher, something are going to become more professional is high in the sky and no matter what Tisha can do I think she's going to do a fantastic job but she needs more people around her that's why I think you know maybe the clubs can get, get get it right and then the clubs can be the example for others and they can maybe encourage people the clubs can encourage their regional provincial PSSIs to adopt a more professional approach Well that's it for this episode my thanks to Anthony Sutton for his time and my thanks to you for listening Please rate, comment, subscribe on iTunes and all those places where you get your podcasts. You can find me at Mr. Richard Clark, E on the end of Clark, on all social media or on my website, mrrichardclark.com. Till next time, goodbye.